This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In Galatians 5, God's Word says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This passage is one of the clearest in all of Scripture regarding how we are to think about the Christian life. Nevertheless, it is probably not the passage about which most Christians hear most of the time. It is not where the focus tends to be. One suspects that more Christians are aware of St. Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts than they are about his teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. John Fesco has begun to redress this imbalance. He has just published a new book, The Fruit of the Spirit Is, available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. John Fesco is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Academic Dean at Westminster Seminary, California. And he joins us now to talk about this new book and the topic, The Fruit of the Spirit. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott. It's good to be here. Well, you've written a book about the fruit of the Spirit. Talk a little bit about why. I think that in the Reformed Church, there are many people that are very familiar, say, with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And uh, that's terrific and that's important. But I think often when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, that is our growth in grace and our growth in conformity to Christ's holy and perfect image, there are a lot of folks out there that are not quite sure how to handle it. And so they often, I think, come at the doctrine and at the Christian life in a broader sense from a perspective of trying to somehow earn or merit uh, their sanctification. They look, say, at the fruit of the Spirit, for example, and they see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all of the different fruits. And they think that those are things that they have to try to be rather than recognizing that those are the things that they are in Christ. And uh, and instead of relying upon the grace of the Holy Spirit and upon the means of grace, they have a very works-based kind of Arminian, really, doctrine of sanctification. There are a lot of ways you could talk about the Christian life and sanctification. Why the fruit of the Spirit in particular? What is it that drew your attention to this passage and that way of thinking about the Christian life? 
Well, in one sense, it came naturally because it was originally fruit, if you pardon the pun, that came from a sermon series, and so I was going through the book of Galatians. But I think that, in particular, the book of Galatians is so well known for Paul's defense of justification that oftentimes, perhaps, what he has to say about sanctification is uh, does not receive as much attention. And so I wanted to draw attention to the fact that Paul does address both, but, as we might say, he addresses them in his good and perfect order in terms of talking about the foundational nature of justification, and in light of who we are in terms of our justification, then saying that we are free to grow in grace and to uh, be further conformed to Christ's image. One of the things that surprised me about the book and delighted me is that you didn't just start in on the fruit of the Spirit, but you put them in a broader context. Why did you do that? Why was that important? What's interesting, I think, is that Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But before that, a few verses earlier, he talks about the flesh and what the flesh, the sinful flesh produces. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there are two kingdoms in conflict here, and it's two groups of citizens, the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of darkness, or there are a number of different terms that are used in Scripture, and those people that are united to that kingdom produce in their lives the sexual immorality, the lying, the deceit, uh, the divisions, and what have you, and idolatry, whereas the citizens of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of light or the kingdom of Christ, they are given the Holy Spirit and therefore produce love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and so on. And so I wanted to set the stage in terms of how did we even get to where we are presently. So in discussing the resultant works of the two representative Adams, the first and last Adams, or Adam and Christ, to show what happened as a result of Adam's fall and what has happened as a result of Christ's faithfulness in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Had the fruit of the Spirit always been available and present in history? Yes, in terms of the Holy Spirit as the agent of sanctification, regeneration from the moment of Adam's fall until present and until the consummation. So in that respect, yes, it's always been available. But in the wake of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it has been available in terms of a greater outpouring. Uh, it's no longer confined to Israel, but it's now been poured out upon the nations, as well as I think we could say that the religion of Israel, if we can state it that way, was much more external, you know, centered around the tabernacle, and now it is uh, no longer such, but rather the temple is within our hearts, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or as Jesus in his discussion with the woman, the Samaritan woman, said that whoever worships in spirit and in truth. So there are some differences between Old Testament and New Testament believers, but it's always been available through the work of the Spirit. You used a word several times here, and it's an important word. It's probably central to what we're talking about, and that is sanctification. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Yeah. Sanctification is the believer's transformation in terms of his growth in grace, so that when he is initially saved, he may struggle with a number of different sins, but the longer he is saved, the longer he is in union with Christ. In a sense, this is perhaps an oversimplification, he sins less and obeys more. Now, that's a very, very basic uh, definition of it, but it's basically our conformity, a progressive conformity to Christ's image that is uh, completed in our glorification or our total transformation to the image of Christ at the consummation, at the end of all things. What is the relation then between sanctification and the fruit of the Spirit? Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is something that should be produced in our lives as a result of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. 
so that if we're a believer, if we're united to Christ, then we should ideally exercise patience with people, show kindness to people, show love to people. If prior to our conversion we were embroiled in divisions and in jealousy and in anger and in hatred, well then, because of who we are in Christ, because of the Spirit's presence in us, He produces this fruit within us. Therefore, we respond very differently, hopefully, ideally, in the same situations now that we are Christians. I want to come back to that because I think you've raised implicitly a really important point. But before I get there, I want to ask you this. You've used the word justification, and I think you've used the word gospel. Mm -hmm. Let's be clear. What are we talking about? What is justification, and what is the gospel? The gospel, starting more broadly, is the publication of the message that Christ has come not only to live in perfect fulfillment of the law, but also to pay the penalty for our violations of the law, and that anybody who looks to him by faith alone can be saved from the condemnation of the law. And this is something that everyone needs to hear and know, because we are all universally under the condemnation of sin, not only because of Adam's own fall, which that is accredited to our account, but also because of our own individual personal sins. Now, at the core of the gospel, we can say, is the doctrine of justification, because the question is, is that when we stand before a holy God, how and on what basis are we going to be declared righteous? Not merely innocent of wrongdoing, but rather in full conformity to the demands of the law. And we can either be judged righteous on the basis of our own obedience— which in all respects is impossible after the fall because of our sinfulness, or we can be judged righteous and holy in God's sight on the basis of Christ's righteousness. So that's an important foundational understanding that if we don't get that right, then I think we're going to always be trying to get on the treadmill, if you will, of good works, trying to do good in order to somehow merit or somehow get God's favor, when if we recognize that by God's grace, through faith and through our justification, we already have it, and that Christ has already secured our redemption for us, then I think that that enables us and it frees us to live the Christian life pursuing that greater conformity or sanctification to Christ's image. Okay, so the good news is that sinners are right before God, accepted with God, only on the basis of what Christ has done, which is credited to them— who trust in Christ and in his finished work for them. That's right. Now, earlier you talked about what sometimes theologians call progressive sanctification, Mm -hmm. and the fruit of the Spirit is essential to that. But you talked about it in a way that a believer, particularly one who's struggling with sin and doubt and temptation, could hear what you said and say, well, I'm not meeting that test. I'm not sure that I can look at my life and see the kind of progress that Dr. Fesco just described help that doubting sinner? Sure. I think what's important, and this is one of the reasons why I address it in the way that I do in the book, is that, again, so many people think that, okay, this is something that I've got to somehow muster up within myself. And I, you know, to use the phrase, we try to pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps. So we see the fruit of the Spirit and we recognize, well, wait a minute, it says that I have to be patient. So if I can just maybe 
try harder to be more patient with people, then I'm going to, you know, manifest the fruit of the Spirit. So they're looking within. But one of the key elements I think that's so important, and I know that a number of us on faculty, or all of us on faculty, make this point. I know Mike Horton has made this point in a number of his books, is that the gospel is not just for our entry point into the Christian life, but it's there to sustain us throughout the entirety of our Christian life. And so in this sense, we not only look to Christ by faith alone for our justification, but also for our sanctification, so that if we don't have the patience that we want so badly, then we look to Christ through the preaching of the Word, through the means of grace, through prayer, and we seek Him so that He would produce that patience within us. And one of the things I try to show that by is that the fruit of the Spirit is something that's promised long ago in the Old Testament. It's not just something that came up and that Paul thought, well, gee, what kind of analogy can I use here? Oh, I know I'll talk about fruit. That would be a good way to illustrate it because maybe these people are coming from some sort of agrarian society. No, he's drawing upon prophecies from Isaiah and other portions of the Scriptures to show that God himself would produce the fruitfulness of his people, and it would be the fruit of righteousness, holiness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So if you don't see the progress that you want, it's not an exercise in trying harder, but rather it's in drawing closer to Christ. You're listening to Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking with John Fesco about his latest book, The Fruit of the Spirit Is. And when we come back, John, I want you to address this question, this problem. As we sit here and talk, there's a good deal of what they call in media circles blowback against the very sort of approach to sanctification and the Christian life that we've been discussing. When we come back, I want you to answer the critics. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where for 30 years we've been fulfilling his vision of preparing men for ministry and teaching them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Well, you asked me to address the blowback or what some of the critics might have to say in terms of what we've previously discussed. What you mean to tell me that I'm sanctified by faith alone? Don't my good works in some sense play a role in my sanctification? And perhaps it sounds a little earth-shattering, but I want to emphasize the fact that no, our good works don't play a role in our sanctification. In other words, we don't believe that we are sanctified by our good works. In other words, that by doing obedience, that somehow makes us holier. Rather, we are sanctified by looking to Christ by faith as he works in us through the Spirit. So not only does Christ sanctify us, but he also justifies us as well. Now, the immediate reaction is, what about good works? Don't we have to do something? And the way that I like to emphasize this is to say that, yes, By pursuing Christ and by Christ sanctifying us, he will produce the fruit in us. And I think a great summarization of that can come from uh, Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And I think that's really the nub, if you will, or the core of the argument that I present here in this uh, Fruit of the Spirit book. When Christians hear you say that 
you are not sanctified by good works. They might hear you say, and I don't think you're saying this, but they might hear you say that good works aren't important. Help us with that. Sure. I can begin by saying that with the majority report, and I can't give a percentage, but it's high, but with the majority report of Reformed theologians over the years, they have always argued for the necessity of good works and salvation. In other words, not that we are saved by them, but by virtue of our union with Christ, we will produce good works. So in that sense, I want to affirm that good works are necessary and important. But it's a more fundamental question of how do we produce those good works? Do we produce those good works? Do we produce that love and joy within us by simply trying harder and maybe pretending like we're in the gym if we can just somehow belt out one more rep on the bench press? Or do we produce those good works by relying upon Christ and seeking him through the means of grace to produce them in us? That, I think, is the fundamental question. So I could state that same thing differently, or maybe theologically, by saying, is there a difference between a Reformed understanding of sanctification and an Arminian understanding of sanctification? And the answer is, is yes. I think that there are many within the Reformed Church that have a, an Arminian understanding of sanctification, thinking that that is what the Reformed tradition has taught, and it's not. Rather, it is Christ who lives within us and produces that fruit, and by seeking him, that is how we will do those good works and see that fruit produced in our lives. So it's not whether good works, and it's not even whether we produce them, because if I'm hearing you correctly, you're really saying that God the Holy Spirit is at work in us, and He will produce these fruit. Now, we have a role in this, but it's interesting that Paul uses the metaphor of fruit and it's the fruit of the Spirit. So that seems to me significant. Okay, I want to go back and think about some more lines of discussion in this very stimulating book, one of which is the connection you draw between various parts of the Old Testament and the fruit of the Spirit. For example, when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we don't normally think about Isaiah and the fruit of the Spirit. What's the connection there? Sure. What's interesting about Isaiah and in many ways, I think it was Gerhardus Voss that said that the prophet Isaiah is the Old Testament counterpart to the Apostle Paul in the New. And so there are many themes that appear in both Paul and Isaiah. And what Paul does, I think, is he picks up on this theme of the fruit of the Spirit. So, for example, in Isaiah 5, Isaiah likens Israel to a vineyard. And he says that God planted his vineyard, but then instead of the fruit that God desired to see grow in Israel, his vineyard— Instead, wild thistles and thorns and wild fruit grew up. Now, when Isaiah explains what the fruit is, he says he's looking for God's fruit, which was righteousness, love, patience, those types of things. And instead, he saw hatred and violence and anger. And so then in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, and this is perhaps a passage that's familiar to all of us in terms of the root that would grow from the stump of Jesse— is that he says that there would come a branch that would spread and produce fruit throughout the entire earth. And so I think it's passages such as that that Paul is picking up. And Isaiah also uses this type of imagery in Isaiah in the 27th chapter and the 32nd chapter where he talks about the earth becoming again like the Garden of Eden as the Spirit is poured out and as fruit grows throughout the world. Obviously, 
Isaiah isn't talking about apples and oranges, but rather he's talking about righteousness, holiness, love, joy, peace, and patience. And even a number of the very fruits that Paul mentions in the fifth chapter are mentioned in Isaiah. So he picks this stream up, and he's telling the Galatians that what was promised long ago in Isaiah that would come about by the servant of the Lord and the outpouring of the Spirit has been manifest in and through Christ through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then the subsequent outpouring of the Spirit. So when you manifest patience in a difficult circumstance, that's the fulfillment of a thousands-year-old prophecy that Isaiah gave us back in the Old Testament. You mentioned the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and when we think about that happening in redemptive history, at Pentecost, many Christians move almost automatically from that event to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and they think about the gifts of the Spirit, and there's a lot of attention in the contemporary church to the gifts of the Spirit, relatively little to the fruit of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Work out that relationship for us. Yeah. I think what's so important that we grasp is that so many Christians, when we talk about the outpouring of the Spirit, are looking for what we perceive to be the spectacular. I want to do something special. And what we don't realize is that there's a sense in which we can say the work of the Spirit is somewhat mundane or ordinary from one vantage point. In other words, Kindness, an act of kindness, doesn't necessarily seem all that spectacular. But when we look at it from another vantage point, when you consider how cruel the world can be, how rare it is to find an act of kindness, a genuine act of Christian kindness towards, say, not just one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but rather maybe towards somebody who hates us, an unbeliever of the worst sort, then all of a sudden I think that that gives the fruit of the Spirit an entirely different character. And we see that as God promised, especially against the backdrop of Israel's faithlessness, when he compared through Isaiah Israel to this wild vineyard that he was going to destroy, now all of a sudden I think the fruit of the Spirit takes on a very different character so that it's an amazing thing to see somebody respond in kindness and love when the world might ordinarily respond with violence or hatred. Paul draws a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Can you explain that for us briefly? Sure. I think that we like to focus so much on the fruit of the Spirit, which is helpful and good, but uh, as you said, too often we forget about the works of the flesh, and we forget that, in a sense, not only is this what we have been delivered from, but this is also what characterizes those who are under Satan's dominion as a result of the fall of the first Adam. Now, the works of the flesh, Paul says in Galatians 5.19, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And maybe for many of us who have been in the church for the vast majority of our lives, we don't realize that that's what we have been delivered from, but that's what we've been delivered from. Or, sadly, perhaps sometimes uh, we see this within the church where people give in to those sinful desires, and we think that that's the norm, rather than recognizing, no, that's the norm of the fallen kingdom of Adam, not of the final kingdom of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the connection between what we confess in the Westminster Confession, the due use of ordinary means, and the fruit of the Spirit? That's a great question, and the reason I think it is is because so many people really undervalue the 
due use of ordinary means, or what we would call the means of grace, word, sacrament. Those are the objective means. The subjective means of grace would be prayer. And that, I think in that respect, corporate worship is dramatically undervalued when it comes to our growth in our sanctification. Sure, our private devotions are important. I don't want to undercut that in any way. But I like to say that the fulcrum of our sanctification lies in the use of the means of grace. In other words, God speaks to us through his word, through the preaching of the word, and it's as we hear the word that the word, through the power of the Spirit, conforms us to the image of Christ. It's the same power that went forth in the creation of the world, let there be light. Well, that's that same power that Christ wields upon his people, not only through the preaching of the word, but also through the reception of the sacraments, whether we're talking about baptism or the Lord's Supper. And in this connection, I think that Greg Beale has a tremendously helpful study on the doctrine of idolatry, and while he doesn't address the subject directly, he does this in his book, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry, and the, the main title— <laughs> Available through the bookstore. Yes, absolutely. At, at Westminster Seminary, <laughs> California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Right, and that title is called uh, We Become What We Worship. And uh, that is so crucial, is that if we want to become like Christ— then the way we do so is by worshiping him, not by trying harder, but rather by worshiping him. And in worshiping him, as he pours out the Spirit through the means of grace upon us, he conforms us to his image. And then as we go out, we yield the fruit. We do the good that the Scriptures command because Christ does it living in us through the Spirit. And it's not that we don't struggle against sin. I mean, there Correct. is that language in Scripture yes. about fighting and struggling and dying. I mean, right. these are things that, that happen to us. These are things that we do. But these things are the result of the work yes. of the Spirit in us. One last thing, and one of the many interesting things in this book is mm-hmm. the connection you draw between the fruit of the Spirit and the comfort that gives to the grieving. Someone's listening, Pastor, to you and to me, and maybe they've just lost a loved one, or or maybe uh, they're in the midst of some other sort of a trial. How do the fruit of the Spirit bring comfort to a Christian in the midst of suffering? One of the things that I wanted to convey to the readers is that if you find yourself in the midst of a trial, so often I think that there are people within the broader church especially maybe in Pentecostal circles or especially in health and wealth portions of the church, where they think that if you're suffering, then somehow you are not living the victorious Christian life. Or if you're suffering, you are somehow being disobedient to the Lord. And one of the things I wanted to convey is the idea that, no, it's often in the midst of our sufferings that that is the crucible in which God draws us out of ourselves, helps us to recognize our inability to do these things, and it causes us to flee to Christ, the only one who can sustain us as well as the one who sanctifies us. And it's in coming to the end of ourselves, it's in driving us to our knees in prayer where we cry out to Christ, Uh, you know, sanctify me, pour out your Spirit upon me that I might be further conformed to your image, that this is where we grow in grace. And so I wanted to convey that and understand that that is one of the areas and the ways in which the Lord conforms us to his image. So far from being a reason to be depressed or far from being a reason to be discouraged, rather that's when we should recognize, hey, the Lord is here doing his work in my heart, and I need to seek him further so that I may be strengthened in the midst of this difficulty, so that in my weakness, 
That's where Christ is glorified most, and that's where He is manifest most in and through me. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.